Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. We all love a great entrance, don't we? Man, a Hollywood star steps out of a limo onto some red carpet, right? Camera flashes and light up the Kodak Theater. Or the final pairing, they, they take that dog leg right on the 18th hole, right? And they're walking up the fairway and the crowd's cheering. It's Sunday and the green jacket is hanging in the balance. Might happen today where those church doors open and everyone stands. And the bride begins walking down the aisle. There's nothing like a great entrance, is there? And I tell you, Jesus, he, he appreciated a good entrance too. In fact, one of the greatest entrances perhaps that has ever been taken, Jesus will take in the passage that we're going to be studying today. Because today is Palm Sunday. And my name is Jeremiah Ebling, and I serve as the youth pastor here at Grace. And today we're going to look at one of the most majestic, unbelievable entrances of all time in our passage. And this entrance, it is, it is so important. And Jesus has been preparing for it for three years. Luke, in, in his gospel, four different times leading up to this passage, Luke's going to say that Jesus has set his face on Jerusalem. That he has turned towards Jerusalem and he is preparing himself for this grand entrance. In the five days, they're going to follow it. Jesus, his, his life and his ministry will culminate in, in what we're going to be looking at today. It's the moment that, that prophets for hundreds of years and hundreds of years earlier had written about, they pointed to. It was the moment that every one of Jesus' disciples, every Jew, for 2,000 years had been anticipating and looking forward to. And we're going to look at, at the fifth time that Luke's going to tell us that Jesus has set his sights on Jerusalem and this entrance. And in our passage today in Luke chapter 19, if you guys want to turn on over there, Luke is uh, in the Gospels in the New Testament, about three-quarters of the way through your Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke. And, and in Luke chapter 19, verse 28, we're going we're gonna to find out a little bit about this, this grand entrance that Jesus makes. And in, in verse 28, Jesus, uh, he went on ahead, Luke says. 
And he goes up to Jerusalem. This is the fifth time now that that Luke will say, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He is set on Jerusalem. He is focused on this entrance. And to set the stage some, you know, Jesus, uh, he is coming into Jerusalem at the beginning of, of the Passover week. And, uh, and Passover was this huge celebration. It was, it was the biggest moment in, in the, the ca- on the calendar for the Jewish people because Passover was the celebration of God's deliverance of, of Israel from slavery in Egypt a few thousand years before. And uh, that Passover, uh, the night of that deliverance a few thousand years before, what, what happened is that those Jewish homes who had taken a lamb and slaughtered it and, and spread its blood on the doorframe of their house, they would be saved. God would pass over their house, but every Egyptian house that day, every Egyptian house, they would lose their firstborn. And it was the last plague. It was, it was the, the final straw. And finally, Pharaoh lets God's people go. But that is, that's what's happening this, this week as, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. It is the beginning of Passover. And, and you have to understand that, you know, Passover, it was kind of like if you took July 4th and Thanksgiving and Christmas and rolled them all into one. That's what this holiday was. It was an incredible celebration, a week-long celebration. And Jesus is going into Jerusalem at the beginning of, of that Passover week. And what would happen in Jerusalem is, is, you know, it's normal size of about 30,000 people. It, it would go to about 180,000, okay? So six times its normal size. Okay, just imagine if you could, uh, here in Austin, you know, this weekend, if we had Formula One, the Rot Biker Rally, uh, South by Southwest, ACL, all going on on the same weekend. I mean, it would be really hard to get around this town, wouldn't it? You'd see a lot of sleeveless shirts and do-rags and probably skinny jeans walking around, but it, it would it'd be hard to move anywhere. And that's what was taking place in Jerusalem. The, the, the town is packed out. Okay, six times its normal size. And, and uh, that's, that is the day that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. There is no, no busier, more festive, more crowded day in Jerusalem than this one when Jesus is about to walk into Jerusalem. And, and then Luke says in verse 29, if you're follow, following along in, in Luke 19, verse 29, Luke says, Jesus approached Bethphage. And Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. You see, he's coming to the Mount of Olives. And, and sure, you know, we, we may not appreciate the significance of that fact, of these two little towns on that little mount, the Mount of Olives. But I tell you, every Jew that saw Jesus heading up to Jerusalem, yeah, they'd know this could be an extremely significant moment in their lives. This could be it. And, and that's, that's what they are thinking as Jesus is walking up to the Mount of Olives. Because that Mount of Olives that Jesus is approaching, it's the same Mount of Olives that the prophet Ezekiel talked about 500 years earlier in the Old Testament. And, and Ezekiel, what he does in his book is, is he talks about this God who comes to his people Israel. And he loves them and he takes them to be his bride. And he, he loves them and he cares for them. But Israel... They keep running off on him. They keep running to other lovers and, and to other gods. And time and again, what God does is he goes after them. And he brings them back home. And he says, I forgive you and I love you. But finally, Ezekiel tells about this terrible moment in the life of the nation of Israel. In, in chapter 11, verse 23, it will be on the screens here. Ezekiel has this vision. He gets this vision from God. God takes him up above Jerusalem. and he's looking down on Jerusalem. He says, I saw the glory of God depart the city. And it stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. You see, God leaves Israel that day. The glory of God departs the city. 
And the way he goes out is he leaves the temple and he comes out the east gate. And he goes and, and he stands over the Mount of Olives. And then he's gone. God leaves his people. And it is this horrible time in the life of this nation, that day when God has left his people. But what's amazing as you continue to read through Ezekiel is you see, you see that there's more to this story. And what Ezekiel says is that, that you know what, God, God knows that his people have been rebellious. They have been unfaithful to him. They deserve nothing. And yet he comes to them through Ezekiel and he says, I will never divorce you. No, I'm coming back for you. He says, you can bet on that. I'll be back. I'm not going to divorce you. You are still my bride. And, and Ezekiel points to this moment when God's going to come back, when the glory of God's going to return. And, and in chapter 43 of Ezekiel, verses 1 to 4, uh, Ezekiel has another vision. And, and he says, the Spirit of God led me to the gate facing the east. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. The glory of God returns to Israel, returns to Jerusalem, comes back to the temple. And you know the way he comes back? The same way that he left. He comes from the east over that mountain that is on the east side of the city, the Mount of Olives. And he comes back and he goes right through that east gate and right into the temple, right, right back into Jerusalem. And Ezekiel tells about this moment. And, and Zechariah in chapter 14, 4, he speaks of this glorious day too. And he says, his feet, that's the Messiah's feet, the glory of God. When God comes back to us, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And so you see, when, when the Jews, when, when they see Jesus is approaching that mount, when they see that he is walking up to the Mount of Olives and he has set his feet on that mount and he starts looking towards that east gate, you know what they start thinking? started asking questions. Is this it? Is this the moment? Is the glory of God returning to us? Is God coming back for his people? And, and you know that they're, they're thinking this because in verse 37, Luke says, when Jesus came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, right, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they'd seen. See, this is it, the moment that we have been waiting for. The moment when God is coming back to us. He's coming back to Israel. He's going to save us. And so, and, and so that's, what, that's what these Jews, that's what Jesus' disciples are seeing as he, as he sets himself up on the Mount of Olives and he sets his gaze on the east gate. That's what they see happening. And so as Jesus, as he stands on the Mount of Olives and he's looking at that east gate, this is what he would see. That would be, that's the east gate right there. He is looking at Jerusalem. And, and that east gate, it's, it's just a, a pretty long stone's throw away. But it is not that far away. That is that same east gate, again, that the glory of God departed and that God's going to come back through when he comes back for his people. And then if you were to stand at, at the east gate and you were to look back at the Mount of Olives, this is what you would see. You see, it, it is, it's pretty close. I mean, it'd be like if Jesus were standing over at the crate and barrel, right, and the east gate is these doors right here in the middle of our auditorium. And Jesus looks at that gate. That gate that the glory of God is going to return through. And that's, that is where he has directed his attention. That is where he's headed. And, and the disciples, they know this. And remember, it's Passover. So there are, there are thousands of people who have come out of the city now. They've come out and, and they are setting themselves up between the east gate and the Mount of Olives. And they are, they are cheering and they are shouting and they are praising God as they see Jesus set himself up on that mount, 
that God's going to return on and begin making his way to that east gate. And, and they say, you know, they, they, have, they quote Old Testament prophecy in verse 38. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They, they start laying down their cloaks for him to ride in on because they're welcoming their king, their God, who's come back to save them. And that's, that's what's happening here. That is what they are seeing as Jesus begins to make his way down, down the Mount of Olives. They see their Savior coming for them, They're the Messiah, the anointed one, the king. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to protect his people. He's going to get rid of their enemies. And, and he's going to bring peace and glory back to Israel. And they shout that in verse 38. They say, peace on earth and glory in the highest. The day has come. It is here. And, you know, throughout the Gospel of Luke, it's interesting. You see Jesus walking everywhere, right? He, everywhere he goes, he's walking. But not on this day. No, on this day, he's not walking anymore. Now he's riding. He's coming in like a conquering king would. Because we call this event the triumphal entry because a triumph was a formal event in the ancient world. It was, it was this moment when a conquering king would come back to his people, would come back to his hometown after having defeated some enemy. And he comes in, and he comes in on a white stallion. And he's on this white stallion, and, and, uh, and the people, they'd come out of town, and they'd come to the edges of town, and they would lay their cloaks down that he would ride in on. He'd ride over these cloaks, and they would say, here is our king. And that's what they're doing for Jesus right now, too. They're saying, here's our king. And so Jesus, he, he prepares for this triumph by sending two of his disciples in, in verse 30, presumably to get that, his white stallion, his war horse, right, that he's going to ride into Jerusalem on. And he sends those two disciples to look for, for his stallion. And, and they get to the place where he sends them, and they're looking around. And they don't see a mighty stallion anywhere. Instead, what they see is this, a donkey. Not, not really even a donkey. It's a little baby donkey. <laughs> it's the cult of a donkey. And can you imagine those two disciples when, when they find this? Can you imagine what they must have been thinking? Wait, what? Jesus, you, you can't come in on this. No, no, no. This is, this is your day, the, great, the grand entrance that have been has been told about for hundreds of years. You can't come in on that. Now, Jesus, you may need a new PR agent. This is no way to get elected. I mean, hobbits ride in on donkeys, okay? The king of the universe, no, he needs a stallion, right? But that's exactly what Jesus is going to ride in on. He's going to ride in on a donkey. No, a little baby donkey. And as he comes into Jerusalem... You know, here is our king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, sitting just a few feet from the ground. I'll bet he had to hold his legs up so his feet wouldn't drag on the ground. And this will only be the first time that Jesus' disciples say, wait, what? All the power in the universe, and it's sitting on the back of a donkey colt. All the power that Jesus has, and it is expressed in a way that nobody was prepared for. Jesus' power is expressed in humility. His strength is displayed through meekness. His might is shown in gentleness. And, and that power is expressed in humility. It, it doesn't just stop with a donkey. 
Because what you find in this passage as you read through it is that, that Jesus, he's looking ahead just five days, 120 hours later. And you know what he sees? He sees that the vast majority of the thousands of people who are welcoming him in as king on this day, the next time that he hears from them, they're going to be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And the few people that aren't going to be shouting that, those disciples, those 12 men that he'd invested every year and, and every day of the last three years in, their silence is going to be deafening. Every single person that is there on that Palm Sunday welcoming Jesus in, they're going to be either running from him or turning on him by Friday. And Jesus knows that. And you know that that's what he's thinking because as you look at this passage and, and you see that the crowd is cheering and they're praising God because God is returning to Israel, if if you were to look at the face of Jesus, Luke says, you know what you would see? You'd see tears. Jesus is crying. He's weeping because he's looking at Jerusalem and he's looking at the city and he's looking at all the people singing his praises and welcoming in their king today. And he knows what's coming. He knows what's coming. And he says in, in verse 42, he says, if you, even you, Jerusalem, had only known on this day what would really bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And he goes on to tell them that their enemies are coming and that they're going to conquer Israel. They're going to they're lay them waste. And he says, it is because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You see, the king, he is among them. He's in their midst. But they're not going to recognize him sitting on the back of that donkey colt. They're not going to recognize him. And Jesus looks ahead and and he knows that all those cheers are going to turn into yells and screams that he be killed. And, you know, it's interesting. His, his response isn't anger or rage or vengeance or these things that you would expect or that, that any of us might experience. Now, what you see in Jesus as he, as he makes this realization is you see sadness. You, know, you see pity. You see compassion. You see these tears of humility. And, and it's this, this moment when you see all the power in the universe. Again, the one who, with a single word from his mouth, could, could, could absolutely demolish the planet. But all that power is expressed in humility. On the back of a donkey, tears running down his face. Jesus' power, it's, it's expressed in humility in this passage. And, you know, there's something beautiful, isn't there? I mean, there's something even extravagant when you see great power that's displayed through humility. You know, it's, it's like if, if you were to see a golden retriever with all of its strength and all of its size laying down to protect a, a little brood of chicks. I'll bet some of you have probably posted this photo on, on Instagram or Facebook, haven't you? Some of you, maybe? Or pictures like this. All right, my mom posts these kinds of pictures twice a day. I, I, don't, I, I really think so. Maybe it's twice a week. But we love pictures like this, don't we? These pictures that, that display great power, you know, in, in the form of humility. Uh, or maybe even more, when you see uh, a soldier with all of his military gear on and, and his, uh, his, his weapon strapped around his shoulder, and yet he's holding a little Afghan or, or Iraqi child, comforting them or protecting them from, from, you know, danger or injury or something like that. I mean, these, these kinds of pictures are spellbinding, aren't they? When you see that kind of power, you know, displayed through humility, there's, there's, something, there's something amazing about that. 
In, in fact, in 2006 in Iraq, there was a, a little Iraqi girl. And her entire family, uh, they were killed by insurgents. In fact, they tried to kill her too. They shot her in the head, but, but she survived. They were unsuccessful. And, and she underwent emergency surgery at a hospital on an American base. And what's interesting about this little girl is that, is that the only thing that would calm her cries, the only thing that would help her moans of pain, the only thing that would, that would settle her down was this. Curling up in the lap of John Gebhardt, a master sergeant in Iraq in 2006. I don't know if, if you've met many master sergeants, but they're not known for being particularly cuddly, you know? And yet the nurses said the only thing that would calm this little girl down was Master Sergeant John Gebhardt. And a number of nights in a row, this is exactly how she slept. He'd just sit on that chair holding that little girl so she could rest, so her body could begin the healing that it needed. Great power displayed in humility. There's nothing like it, is there? I mean, it's incredible when you really see it. And so how do we make sense of this? You know, what do we do with a mighty king who comes in humility? What do we do with that? How do we handle that? What are we supposed to do as, as a result? I, I think, you know, I think you need to know, uh, and, and many of you do, that when you're around Jesus for just a little while, you're going to have these moments where you find yourself and, and people around you are, are, are going to say, wait, what? You know, these moments when you think he's going to have you riding in on a stallion, but instead he puts you on a little donkey colt. You know, you're going to have those moments, right? I mean, if, if maybe you've got a spouse or a close friend who has caused a great deal of hurt and pain in your life, you know, and, and all you want to do is hold on to that. And God's going to come to you and he's going to say, look, I want you to forgive that. I, I want you to. I know that you can. I will help you do that. I want you to forgive all of it. And people will look at that and they won't know what to do with it. They will say, wait, what? What kind of a person are you to forgive that? You know, or you'll have somebody who works for you, who makes some kind of a huge mistake that costs you personally. And it would make perfect sense for you to let them have it or maybe even let them go. And God's going to come to you and he's going to lead you to say, I'm going to help you with this. I'm going to help you clean this mess up. And coworkers, they, they will be amazed and they will say, wait, what? I have never met a leader like you. Or you'll have kids and, and they'll have needs that you don't know how to meet and you don't even know if you want to try to meet them. And God, as exhausting as it will be, God will come to you and he will lead you to say, you know what, honey, I don't, I don't know how to help you with this. But I'm going to do everything I can to try. I'm going to do everything I can to help you. Wait, what? You're going to have these kinds of moments. When God comes to you and he says, all that power that I've given you, that position, I want you to display it. I want you to show it off in great humility. And we're going to have moments like these. And, and when we, we, you have these kinds of moments, what's going to happen is that people around you, they're going to say, wait, what? And, and they're going to they're marvel at that because what they're going to see through you is they're going to see your Savior. Because you know what? That's not humanly possible, is it? We can't do that on our own. Uh, they're going to see your Savior. They're not going to know what to do with you because they didn't know what to do with Jesus, but they will see your Savior. And if you're wondering, okay, how do I get there? How do I get to a place where I can be powerful but humble, where I can be strong and yet meek? How do I do that? I, I can't get there on my own. I think you have to start where Jesus did. I think you have to start by, by just doing what you're told because that's what Jesus does. He just does what he's told. I mean, and, and you read through the story, and, 
And it's just kind of yelling at you. You've got not just Jesus but others. But if you look carefully at this triumphal entry, what you see is that Jesus is simply obeying his father every step of the way. You know, why does Jesus come in on a stallion? Why doesn't he come in on a stallion? Why does he come on the colt of a donkey instead? Because that's the way his father scripted it 500 years before. In Zechariah 9.9, God says through Zechariah, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, Jesus, he's just playing his part. He is. He's just playing the part that the father scripted for him 500 years before. He is just doing what he's told. But it's not just Jesus. What is really cool as you look through this passage is that you see as, as people spend just a little bit of time around Jesus, they begin doing this too. They just begin doing what they're told. They just play their part. And, and you know, you look at it, You look at these, these two disciples that Jesus sends to get that, that colt, right, that animal he's going to ride it on. What do they do? They do it. They just do what they're told. And then they get there and they're untying this donkey and the owner of the donkey comes out and, and, uh, and the, of course, the owner says, hey, what are you doing? You know, that's, that's my donkey. And the disciples say, you know what, the Lord needs it. And they know who the Lord is. Those owners know who the Lord is because it wasn't that long ago that he was in their little town raising Lazarus from the dead. They spent a little bit of time around Jesus too, and so they say he can have it. They're just doing what they're told as well. I mean, even this donkey, okay, this is getting kind of weird, I know. But even this donkey gets in on this. All right, look at verse 30. What do you notice about the significance of this animal? He's never been ridden on, right? I mean, if you ever jumped on an animal that's never been ridden on, it probably did not go well for you, right? And that animal is not going to look back at you and say, where to, buddy? That, that is not what he's going to say. No, he's going to do whatever he can to get you off. He is going to run you into a fence. He will buck you off because he doesn't know you and he doesn't trust you. George Whitfield said, and I love this, the reason that animals fear and growl at us is because they know that we have a quarrel with their master. But this colt, when Jesus gets on him, he just starts moving. He doesn't buck. No, he just starts moving. He just does what he's told. And even when he's walking through this crowd of thousands of screaming people, can you imagine that? This animal that's never been ridden on, what does he do? He just keeps moving. He just does what he's told. And then my favorite part, my favorite part, the Pharisees, you know, they see this crowd calling Jesus the Messiah, essentially. And they say, they say Jesus, you need to quiet these disciples and what does he say in verse 40? His response is, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Right? He says, hey, look, guys. Look, everybody is just playing their part today. Okay? Everybody's just doing what they're told. And you know what? If these people don't play their part, if they don't do what they're told, the rocks will do it for them. Somebody is going to cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord today. And if they won't, the rocks will. Isn't that cool? Yeah, everybody's playing their part today. Everybody's just doing what they're told. You know, if, if you spend a little bit of time around Jesus, this is what you see happening in your life, that you just begin doing what you're told. You start to see power expressed in humility. And, and the Spirit of God, you know what he's going to do? He's going to come to you. As you start to walk with God, he's going to come to you. And he's going to tell you that there's some things he wants you to do. And it's not going to be easy. It may not even make sense. But he's just going to say, look, look, I want you to obey. I want you to do this. That's what the Spirit will do with us. And, and when you look at, at, uh, at this point, you know, Jesus just does what he's told. We're supposed to do what we're told. I know what some of you guys are thinking. I know some of you don't like this point because I don't like this point. 
Okay, I really don't. Like, it bugs me, you know? God, aren't you even going to ask me what I think about this? No, he probably won't. But I know this bugs most of you guys probably. I mean, we're from Texas after all. No, no, we're from Austin, Texas. Okay, we're born this way. We don't like to be told what to do, do we? But that's exactly what God is going to ask of us. He's going to come to us and he's going to say, look, I I want you to do what I'm asking you to do. Would you obey me? Would you do that? You know, and and I mean, when you 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 think about about how that would really go, would it really be that bad? You know, when, when the God who formed you and the God who knows you, when he comes to you and says, this is what I want from you, could it really be that bad simply to obey? I mean, he is the coach who wants you to wear the state championship ring, not lose in the first round of the playoffs. Right? He's the piano teacher that wants you to play Beethoven, not just chopsticks. And he is the parent that gives you a curfew because he wants you to get home alive. Okay, he's the God of the universe who gave his only begotten son for you. What if you just gave it a try? You know, what if you said, okay, I'll obey. I'll just do what I'm told. I'll play my part. You know, would you, would you imagine with me just for a moment, those two to three Christians that are in your life that you respect the most, that you look up to, you want to be like them. Think about those, those few Christians. I'll bet they do this, don't they? I'll bet they obey the Spirit of God in their life. And you know what? Yeah, they've got fear and they have pride and they've got stubbornness and all that, but they choose not to let it get in the way of obedience to the Spirit. And so... And so you look at their lives, you know, and you, what you probably will see in those, in those few Christians' lives is you'll see joy. You'll probably see a life that's being lived without regret. And you'll have to know that is how they got there. They just do what they're told. They are playing their part. Hey, so, you know, the Spirit, he may be whispering something to you right now. And he may be saying, look, this is what I want you to do. And I'd like to ask you, would you just consider doing what you're told? Would you just consider obeying? Obeying the Spirit's voice in your life. Maybe even right now, maybe he's reminding you of something that he's been talking to you about for a little while now. Would you consider just obeying him? Would you do that? There's one last thing that I'd like to say, and that is this. You see, the disciples, they were wrong, but they were also right. Because what Jesus does uh, on this day, on this triumphal entry, is he sets himself up on the Mount of Olives and he begins to move down towards the East Gate and, and God is coming back to his people, right? He is doing what the prophets foretold that he would. And the disciples, they all think he is coming in as the conquering king. He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to save us. Well, yeah, he's going to save them, but he's not coming in as a conquering king this time. No, this time he's coming in as a sacrificial lamb, the lamb that is spoken of in Isaiah 53. That is how he's coming in on this first triumphal entry. And, and so the disciples were wrong. That's not how he was coming in this time. It wasn't as that conquering king. He was coming in as the Passover lamb, and he goes directly to the temple, and he cleans it out, and he gets rid of all the animals that are being sold there for Passover sacrifices because what he's doing is he is setting himself up as the sacrificial lamb, the one who will take away everyone's sins once and for all. See, Jesus is expressing his power and humility because he's playing his part. He's doing what he's told. But the disciples, they weren't just wrong. They were also right. And they were right because Scripture does point to this day. There's a day that is coming. Scripture says, when all of Jesus' humility, it will be expressed in power. That day is coming. And, and really, what we're looking at today is we are looking at the first triumphal entry. 
Because there is a second triumphal entry coming. There is a day that is coming when, when Zechariah 14 says that the Savior, the Messiah, he's going to land on the Mount of Olives once again. And when his two feet, when they are set on that mount, it is going to, to split in half. It's going to break apart. And he's going to make his way down through that east gate once again and into Jerusalem. And he's coming in, and he's coming in as a king. And he's coming in as this conquering king who's going to claim what is his, and he's going to claim those who are his. And this time, he won't be on a donkey. Now, he won't be on a little baby donkey. Revelations 19 says he is coming on that white stallion this time. And he's coming in, and he's coming to, to conquer and to save his people. And, and what you see with Jesus on that day is that, is that he's just going to be humbly doing what he's told once again. But this time, all all of that humility will be expressed in power. Second Peter tells us why that day hasn't come yet. What is holding Jesus back from landing on the Mount of Olives once again? What's keeping that from happening? Second Peter 3.9 says, God is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's what's holding him back is the patience of God. And you see, one thing that I'd I'd like to ask you to consider is that this conquering king, this sacrificial lamb, you know, who comes into Jerusalem, who comes back for his people, he's come back for you too. And he has paid the price for your sins. And what he does is he welcomes you to come to him and to be made right with your king. And I'd like to ask you to consider, if you have not done that, would you consider doing that today? Today could be that day for you when you say, I'm done fighting. You know, king, you can have your way in my life. Sacrificial lamb, I want you to pay for my sins. Because there is a day that is coming when he is coming back and all of that humility is going to be expressed in power. And when he comes that time, he's bringing judgment. And it's going to be judgment for all those who have rejected him. But today, right now, he's come to you humbly, offering repentance. And he comes to you and he says, look, would you please come to me and find mercy from your loving king? Please consider doing that today if you haven't, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are, um, we are humbled by your humility, and, and we honestly, we don't know what to do with a God who comes to us with all the power in the universe, and yet he comes to us humble. You come back for your people. You come back to save us, and, and you do it in a way that no one expected. And Lord, I ask that... Uh, that you would make us into these kinds of people too. Father, those who are saved, who are your people, who you love, who you have taken as your bride and that you love and, and care for. And I pray that we would become the kind of people, Lord, who are able to be powerful yet humble, just like your son, strong and yet meek. Lord, please make us into those kinds of people. And, and I ask that your spirit, as he comes to us and as he instructs us and as he moves us down a path towards you, Father, that that you would give us the heart of Jesus, that we would simply do what we're told, that we would play our part, and, uh, and that we would do, do that knowing that there is joy on the, at the end of that road, that there is a life lived without regrets, that you and a relationship with you that is full and, and unrestrained is at the end of that road. Would you please do that in us? In your name, amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org. 